So now we're at the heart of the Buddha's teachings and we're really coming into the ultimate goal of this path of practice, which as most of you know is Nibbana, sometimes translated as awakening, enlightenment, liberation. And even though freedom is the whole purpose of this insight practice, there are a lot of misconceptions about what terms like Nibbana or even insight, Vipassana, actually mean. Now, some of you have heard me talk about this before, but some of you might be newer to the group. So I just wanted to say a little bit more about what these terms actually mean in this tradition, what it means when we use terms like enlightenment or awakening or liberation or nibbana, because they can sound very lofty or esoteric or remote. And so sometimes even fairly experienced students, they'll come to me and say, well, I have zero interest in Nibbana. I say, okay, that's fine. So what does that mean to you, Nibbana? And usually they can't tell me. They just know they have no interest in it. And so I might ask, okay, well, why are you meditating? Why are you doing this practice? And pretty much always they'll say something like, well, I want to be more clear I want to suffer less, I want to live with more ease, I want to relate more skillfully to myself and other people, I want to be of service more effectively. And to my mind, all of those are aspects of Nibbana. So just to say a little bit more about what some of these key terms mean. So beginning with insight, the Pali word is Vipassana, And Vipassana literally means seeing clearly, seeing distinctly, seeing separately. And as we gain insight in the beginning, it tends to be more sort of about our personality, more about our social, family, history, our psychology. We understand our own conditioning more clearly. And then we start to see all of those patterns that we were talking about earlier ways that we get caught in habits and identification. And then as the insights deepen and we start to free ourselves from those, the practice progresses and we start to see more clearly what we could call the universal truths of anicca or impermanence, dukkha or unsatisfactoriness, anatta or not-self. In other words, there isn't any fixed, inherent, unchanging essence of me in here to whom all this is happening. And as these insights strengthen, we're able to let go into deeper and deeper levels of freedom. And just to say... uh, The teacher, Rob Berbea, he has a a definition of insight that I appreciate because it makes it so simple and so accessible. And so in his book, Seeing That Freeze, he describes insight pretty broadly as any realization or understanding, any way of seeing things that brings to any degree a reduction in dukkha. So that's really the point, is releasing suffering to any extent 
It's not so much about trying to get some kind of big bang experience and then live happily ever after on some pink cloud called Nibbana, which is sometimes when people misunderstand it. So even so, it's possible that terms like Nibbana don't sound particularly appealing. And in my own practice, it was really helpful to actually read a definition in the discourses where Nibbana is defined as the heart-mind that's free from all forms of greed, of hatred, of delusion. So as we just heard, in the Buddha's awakening, he overcame ignorance. And ignorance is the root cause of all of those afflictive states of heart and mind. So this definition of Nibbana is something that we can experience for ourselves. And I'm confident that every one of you here has tasted at least moments when the heart and mind were temporarily free of greed, of hatred, of delusion, of all of those afflictive states. Maybe just for nanoseconds. But the more we learn to recognize those moments and to strengthen them, over time and with practice, they become more and more the default setting of our hearts and minds. So from this perspective, Nibbana is not, as I said, some kind of one-off Big Bang experience, some sudden radical transformation into a state of permanent bliss. It's not a static state that we get. It's a process that we're all going through. And that's partly why I prefer the term awakening to the term enlightenment. Because enlightenment is a noun, and it can sound like a state or a place to get to. Whereas awakening is a verb, and we can understand that it's an action, a process. And that process involves letting go, releasing all of these different afflictive states. And in their place, strengthening the beautiful qualities of heart and mind, such as generosity and kindness and compassion and gratitude and equanimity and wisdom, to name just a few. So with that understanding that awakening is a process, every one of us here is in that process to some extent. And we can start to explore the role of our collective practice, how this community or sangha plays a role in supporting our awakening, not only our own awakening, but all of us here. And I like to highlight that because in the way the Dharma came to the West, at least in this insight tradition as it's called, for the first couple of decades a lot more emphasis has been put on individual, solitary meditation practice. And even though the Buddha famously said that spiritual friendship is the whole of this, what he called holy life or Dhamma life, and even though the Buddha named himself as a Dhamma friend, as Kalyanamitta, and even though we might not feel a close connection to the Buddha himself, all of us, to some extent, have been affected by his life, or we wouldn't be here today. And as some of you were describing in the relational practice earlier, 
many of you named how you've been inspired by Dharma friends or mentors or teachers. You've been inspired to begin this path, to dip in, in and off it, to continue it in some way. And so it's only more recently that Western Dharma centers have started to understand the importance of Sangha or community. So some of you may have heard me talk about uh, being present when Ajahn Suchito was giving a talk to our, the staff at INS in Massachusetts. And somebody asked him, what for, what for you is the benefit of living in a spiritual community? Now he's a monastic, so he spent most of his life living in a monastery. And he basically pointed to his shaved head and said, you need other people because we can't see the backs of our heads. Now as a monk, that's a metaphor because you can't shave the back of your head without help. But it's also pointing to, we can't see our own blind spots. And that's where we need other people to help reveal sometimes those more stuck places. And I think we know it can be very easy in silent, solitary practice to think that we've resolved all of our problems. But as Ram Das famously said, if you think you're enlightenment, if you think you're enlightened, go and spend a week with your family. <laughs> and I think we can recognize the truth of that. So we need Sangha to help us see our blind spots and to also help us see our own good qualities and strengths. Because often we're just as blind to those as we are to our so-called flaws. So I'd like to share some words from a contemporary practitioner uh, by the name of Thomas Herbel. Does anyone speak German? There's you, umlaut. I think it's Herbel. So Thomas Herbel, he's a German spiritual practitioner, he's a psychologist, he's a trauma healer. And those of you who are psychotherapists, you might be familiar with his work in intergenerational trauma. So he's done a lot of work in countries like Germany and Austria and Argentina and Israel where there's a history of uh, conflict over many decades. And through all of that work, he's really discovered the immense power of Sangha, of relationality. So this is how he described it in a re recent talk. He says, when many people are part of something, it creates a mutual intention, a mutual energy field. And then through that Sangha, I have the possibility to reflect myself or to see my own reflection in many, many other people, many souls and many paths. So Sangha provides an amazing capacity for me to wake up. It's not just that I'm part of something that I'm consuming. I'm part of an awakening field, and you are part of my mirror, and I'll find out what that means for me. And through our mutual presence, we create a kind of energy field together, where the light that comes through in all of us, that higher consciousness, the whispered inspiration, the future creativity, can land in the field of this Sangha and embody itself more and more. So everybody's body is a vessel 
and that vessel starts to receive light through the nervous system, through the physical body, the emotional system, grounded in the world. And that's what we can feel when we see each other, how everybody is a part of that vessel, is part of that cup. And the beauty is also to see the differences, the different aspects of such a cup, like listening to many musicians creating an orchestra. So just as we're sitting here together now, I wonder if you have any sense of being a part of that vessel. You know, we're physically sitting in a kind of a bowl shape here. And we can sense each other's presence perhaps sense how our good qualities are strengthened by being a part of this vessel of community right now. So I'd like to highlight just a few aspects of Thomas Hubel's quote. So one is, he spoke about mutuality, mutual intention, how that mutuality of intention, it creates an energy field So with that shared intention to be more aware, more awake, that supports all of us together to be much more present, much more mindful than we might ordinarily be in the context of our everyday lives where we don't have the support of that mutual intention. So there's mutuality, there's mindfulness, and then his idea of mirroring So seeing ourselves reflected in others and in turn reflecting back to others, seeing the good in each other helps to strengthen it both ways. And that develops confidence in our own capacity. And it inspires us when we see beautiful qualities developing in others too. So mindfulness, mutuality, mirroring, they all come together and they strengthen this individual and collective movement towards understanding and insight and wisdom. So perhaps for some of you that might sound a little bit conceptual or esoteric, but I thought to explore this possibility of mindfulness, of mutuality, of mirroring, in another session of relational practice to see if we can bring it more into our immediate experience. So this time we'll be working together in pairs and we'll be again using the insight dialogue guidelines of pause and relax. So steadying the heart and mind, softening any tension that might be present. And then because this contemplation, it might be a little more subtle, I'd like to bring in a third guideline from Insight Dialogue, and that's the guideline attuned to emergence. Right on cue, we have something to attune to. So that's actually a perfect example. Emergence, so attuning to emergence means attuning to what's emerging, what's present, what's right here now. And this guideline acts as a very powerful counter to our more usual habit of rehearsing, of planning, of telling old stories, of falling back into habit mind. So attuned to emergence is being present right now. What is here? 
what's alive, what's true, what's worth being named. So we let go of any kind of agenda, we let go of trying to control, we try to release wanting to be seen a certain way or not be seen a certain way and really drop down into a more embodied level of understanding because it's from that place that new and fresh insights have more of a chance of arising. So that's what I'd like to invite us to explore now.